So our reading is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you a, as a covenant to the people a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare, before the spring forth I tell you of them. Thank you to Evelyn for that reading earlier. Um, this reading from Isaiah 42 is one of the um, famous four so-called servant songs that we find in the book of Isaiah. The reason we have a reading like this as we are in Advent and making our way towards Bethlehem and the stable and all the story of the Nativity is that the Christian church has traditionally seen these servant songs from Isaiah as pointers to Jesus, which is, is not a bad move in itself. Um, I, I think it's fine for us to read these passages and hear them speaking to how we want to understand what the coming of Jesus means for us. And certainly that was something that the early church did. It's something we find reflected in the New Testament. Um, but there is, a, there is a kind of danger that goes with this, which is that if we're not careful, we end up distancing a text such as um, Isaiah 42 from its original context, because of course it, it had a life of, I don't know what, 600 years before the coming of Jesus. And it, and it spoke to the people of God in that time as well. And so um, this, it's fine, as I said, to read it as, as at one level pointing to Jesus, but that doesn't mean it was originally written and intended to be read in that way. 
And sometimes we need to get back into understanding how these texts functioned in their original context before we can then go on and hear them speaking to us. And the book of Isaiah has this long life outside of its Christian usage. And I think we need to do some justice to that context to truly get to grips with its message. And we need to remember that um, Jesus took a part of today's reading from Isaiah 42 as the text for his Luke chapter 4 sermon, uh, the, the Nazareth Manifesto as it's sometimes called, and that in doing so that angered many of the people listening to him as he told the people of God around him, the Jewish people of that time, that they were witnessing the fulfilment of that scripture in his life. Well, I don't know if you've ever read it through, but the book of Isaiah is quite a long book and it contains a series of prophecies. It has some predictions about the future in it, some of which were fulfilled long before Jesus was born and some of which, such as this one, have been taken to refer to Jesus himself. But I think when we're reading um, prophetic literature such as Isaiah, it helps us to remember that prophecy in the Bible is a whole lot more than just making predictions. Uh, the Bible is not some kind of early version of Nostradamus that we just tick off as, as they happen or don't happen. Prophecy in a, in a biblical sense is about speaking the Lord's words into a particular situation. The prophets of old weren't primarily fortune tellers about what will happen in the centuries to come. They were those who fearlessly proclaimed the word of God to their time, to their people, to their context. And this is what most of Isaiah is about. He is giving the Lord's perspective on what is happening to the nation of Israel, to the people of God, at the time at which the book is being written. Well, I say the book, we do tend to think of the book of Isaiah as being a book, but it is in actual fact three books that have been edited together over the centuries. And between them, these three books of Isaiah cover a period of about 200 years. So the first book is uh, what we call chapters 1 to 39, and this was probably written by the historical character uh, called Isaiah, who was a prophet who lived in Jerusalem about uh, roughly 750 years before the time of Jesus. And at the time of Isaiah, the nation of Israel had split into two, having previously been united under the reigns of David and his son Solomon. But about 200 years before the time of Isaiah, uh, the, the nation had split because Solomon's two sons, who rejoiced in the names of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, had divided the kingdom into north and south. So we've got one nation divided into north and south, splitting off. Any similarities between this and devolved Scottish governments is purely coincidental. Israel now has two countries, the northern kingdom, which still called itself Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah, based on the old tribe of Judah. And the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. Anyway, during the time of historical Isaiah, the author of what we call chapters 1 to 39, there'd been an invasion by the Assyrians who had um, kind of wiped out really the northern kingdoms, the kingdoms of Israel. 
And Isaiah, who was living in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the south, spent much of his time saying something equivalent to, aha, see what's happened to the north, that's the Lord's judgment on them, that is. And if we don't clean up our act down here in the south and get back to worshipping the Lord properly, I reckon the same thing's going to happen to us. You, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm summarising 39 chapters, but you, you get the gist. So we can locate this first part of Isaiah to this period of political instability around the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians and the rising threat to, um, to the kingdom of Judah. And then we come to the second part of what we now call the book of Isaiah. And this is chapters 40 to 55, the, the kind of the middle bit of the book. This was written well over a hundred years after Isaiah the prophet had lived. So we're, we're, we're in the world of what would Isaiah say to us if Isaiah was still alive? That, that is that kind of tradition of writing. And by the time we get to second Isaiah, sure enough, the Babylonians had indeed stormed into Judah. They had destroyed Jerusalem they had destroyed the temple and they had taken uh, many of the Jews, you know, the literate, the ruling, the elite, the middle classes, those people had all been taken off into exile in Babylon. They'd left a few people, they'd left some farmers because, you know, they still needed somebody to farm the land for them, but they'd taken, you know, the, the middle class and above into exile. And so the prophet who wrote the second book of Isaiah was one of those Jews who had been taken into exile into Babylon. And so he's, he's writing in Babylon now, writing for his fellow exiles. And so in second Isaiah, from which our reading for this morning comes, we find the words of a prophet written to a group of Jewish people who were far from home, exiles in a strange land, trying hard to keep the faith, trying hard to keep faithful to the Lord when all of the stability of their faith had been taken from them. These are people who are in a context of religious and political and economic pressure and turmoil. The Babylonians are demanding of them, worship the Babylonian gods, and they are going, no, we will keep faith with the God of Israel. This is, um, this is the same period that a psalm like Psalm 137 comes from. Um, you, you will know it because you, you will know the, the song that's based on it. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept as we remembered Zion. Our tormentors asked of us, sing us one of the songs of the Lord. How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? You know it. This is the time of second Isaiah. This is the time of Isaiah 42. And our passage and the other chapters that surround it, the other servant songs of Isaiah, reflect this context of exile and are addressing the issues that are relevant for the Jewish exiles in Babylon. If we were to read on, we would come to third Isaiah, which is chapters 56 to 66, written later again still, 
uh, written sometime after the end of the exile, when the Jews had returned to the land of Israel. And third Isaiah reflects their context of rebuilding Jerusalem and their temple. But for today, we're firmly in the time of exile. A time when all hope was lost and the prospects of a better future seemed very bleak. Julia Clarsons helps us understand and reflect more on this passage. Um, she quotes Stulman and Kim, who describe prophetic literature as meaning-making literature for communities under siege. I'll say that again. This is the kind of text that is meaning-making literature for communities under siege. How do you make sense of what it is to be a people of faith when everything is now set against you. The world as you knew it, all the stability has gone. How do you make sense of your faith? What literature do you create? And what you create, it turns out, is something like Isaiah 42. This is the meaning-making literature. And a prophet like second Isaiah, who speaks to exiles still recovering from the trauma of Babylonian invasion, can be characterized as a map of hope for disorientated and dislocated people at risk of losing their bearings. Well, I don't know about you, but church ain't what it was. Yeah, I checked check the, the census for 1851, evening service, Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. 1,711 people in attendance, apparently, in 1851. We're in a different context. We've just heard in the official census um, the re results that were released a couple of weeks ago. Now, for the first time, less than half of the, British popu the English population report themselves as religiously Christian. I mean, that's no great surprise to me, frankly, because you know, it's a far smaller percentage of that than actually turn up at church. But we live in a world where the stabilities that shaped what we know as our cultural expression of our faith are gone. And we're having to make meaning and work out what our faith looks like as, dare I say it, exiles in our own land. So how does a prophet go about talking to a people who have lost their certainties, who have been traumatized by dislocation? We live in a world of dislocation. People crossing the channel, fleeing war to come here and then meeting further imprisonment and persecution. What does our faith say to a world of dislocation and exile? What does it say to people who have seen their cities destroyed, their friends and families killed or taken away to foreign lands, to people who feel that God has deserted them? This was the context of ancient Israel in Babylon. And maybe the words of the prophet to them can echo to us as well. Well, the prophet of second Isaiah did not have an easy task on his hands, but throughout these chapters of the central parts of the book of Isaiah, the prophet uses some creative imagery to help people think anew as to how to live in the midst of the terrible chaos that had unexpectedly broken into their lives. So, for instance, uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, 
verses 10 to 11, just a couple of chapters earlier than our reading. God is depicted in one breath as a mighty warrior who will come and deliver his people. But then in the same breath as a shepherd who presses the little lamb of his people tightly to his breast, holding them safe. Further on, just a few chapters after our reading for this morning in uh, chapter 42 verses 13 to 14 we get another unexpected combination of images we've already had warrior juxtaposed with caring shepherd now we get divine warrior juxtaposed with the image of god as a woman in labor and in our text for today verses 1 to 9 we encounter for the first time the image of the suffering servant of god and this serves as a wonderful example of the meaning making nature of the prophetic task in isaiah 42 verse 3 we heard this servant described as a bruised reed as a dimly burning wick However, because of God's spirit at work through them, the servant will in the end not be broken nor quenched, but rather will faithfully continue the mission that God has given of establishing justice on the earth. And this servant, as Isaiah portrays him, offers a profound example of faith in the midst of vulnerability. In Isaiah's terms, the suffering servant is none other than Israel in exile. It is Israel who is God's servant. It is Israel who is personified as the suffering servant, the one who is like a bruised reed. Sometimes that can be true of the people of God. And the power that still resides in that bruised and broken servant is a very different kind of power to what the world might expect. It's a power that does not scream or shout. It offers a sharp contrast to the brutal force executed by the empires of the day, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and their battle armor and their war making. The suffering servant has an inner strength that comes from faith in God. And the servant image introduced here in chapter 42 continues in chapters 49 and 50, culminating in the most famous sections of Isaiah 52 and 53. All of these descriptions of the faithful people of God embodying, encapsulating a life-giving power and strength, despite their fragility and their vulnerability that will bless the world beyond themselves even as they live in exile and this book of second isaiah is characterized by a number of surprising and radical reversals such as the appearance of a highway through the desert in isaiah i mean we know the passage don't we you know make straight in the highway away for the lord but I mean, some of us, you know, I keep trading off this, I know, I promise I'll stop after Christmas, but some of us were out there and we were walking in the desert. It's no small thing to make a highway through the Judean desert. It really isn't. 
And yet, somehow, the people of God, despite their brokenness and vulnerability, will be those who make straight a way for God in the desert. We get in Isaiah 44, water suddenly being found in the wilderness. The wilderness unexpectedly bursting into flower and becoming like Eden in Isaiah 51. Fertility happening where there was barrenness in Isaiah 54. And then perhaps the greatest reversal of them all in our passage from Isaiah 42. The suffering servant is said to give sight to the blind, light and life to those who still find themselves trapped in dungeons. The remarkable thing we see in this text is how the people who have been traumatised are called to not do that typically human thing of uniting defensively against a perceived common enemy. Rather, they are called to live and embody brokenness. And through that brokenness will come a transformation that is a blessing to the world. Edward Said, the Palestinian-American academic and literary theorist, warned that nationalism quite often tends to arise as a consequence of collective trauma. I'll say that again. This is Said, who, whose work on um, colonialism is, is groundbreaking. He, he says that nationalism tends to arise as a consequence of a collective experience of trauma. It would be very easy to expect to find in these texts from Isaiah what Said would call an exaggerated sense of group solidarity, a passionate hostility to outsiders. But that isn't what we find. We don't find Israel in exile hunkering down, keeping themselves secure and hating everybody who's not them. That is not their calling. That is not what the people of God are called to be and do. In Isaiah 42, we find the prophet to Israel in exile offering a vision of the world in which an individual or a group of people in the midst of brokenness, in spite of brokenness, and maybe even because of brokenness, embrace their calling to be a light to the nations. Good news for the whole world. For people today who are all too often finding themselves in states of chaos and despair, the powerful depiction of the suffering servant of Isaiah 42 may, I think, speak in a number of ways. First, in the midst of those times when chaos is rampant, when we are weighed down by the forces that seek to destroy life as we know it, we need to accept the fact that we are often no more than bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks. As the Jewish-Canadian songwriter and, dare I call him, theologian Leonard Cohen sang so beautifully in his song Anthem. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. But that is where the light gets in. That is where the light comes in. In our brokenness, God's light 
gets in. God's grace and power work exactly where we are broken, where we are at our most fragile. As Paul puts it in his second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. I think he'd been reading Isaiah 42, hadn't he? I'd say he'd been listening to Leonard Cohen, but he was sadly a couple of millennia too early. Secondly, in the midst of these most difficult times, when we feel helpless and out of control, we can learn from the example of the suffering servant of Israel in exile, that we should seek to cultivate the power we do have in the midst of our current state of vulnerability, even in the midst of the most dire of circumstances, we do still have the power to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. As we have seen in the case of the suffering servant, this power is a remarkable power. Not like the power of worldly institutions, but a power that grows out of compassion, out of being concerned with the needs and concerns of others. Even if we find ourselves in a completely hopeless and broken situation, we can nonetheless nurture compassion's power. That means that even in the most disturbing of days, we have the ability to do good things, to look beyond our own problems, to focus ourselves on others as well as ourselves. And it is this capacity to hope against hopelessness that shapes the people of God to be the light to the nations that Isaiah speaks of in his prophecy. We are always called to look beyond ourselves, never to throw up the wall to keep the light in, always to tear down the wall to let the light out. Light is a fascinating subject. It's often used as a metaphor in the New and Old Testaments and in Many of those cases, light as a metaphor is used with the sense of the insiders being a light for others. You are the light of the world. Imagine we're in a room and it's cold outside. You don't have to imagine too hard. If we threw open the doors, would outside get noticeably warmer? No, but we'd certainly get colder. That is not how light works. Imagine we're in a well-lit building and we've got the curtains closed and it's dark outside and we open the curtains. Does our room get noticeably darker? No, 
but the world outside gets lighter. That is why we are called to be a light to the nations. Unlike heat, or air-conditioned air, or food, or money, or nearly any other resource that we may care to mention, light can be shared with no diminution for those doing the sharing. And also, light does not exist for its own sake alone. That is, the point of turning on a light in a dark room is not so that we can stare at the light fixtures. The light is there so that we can see each other and the room that we're in. So how do these properties of light shine insight onto our reading from Isaiah 42? God is calling the people of God even in exile and suffering and brokenness to be a light to the nations. And no matter how enthusiastically we live out that calling, it does not cause us to end up in darkness. Whatever light we have will not be dangerously diminished by our sharing of it. I wish some Christians could hear this. We do not need to keep the good news to ourselves to put a defensive wall around it and protect it. We let the light shine where it will in the world as Christ goes out into the world by his spirit, drawing the world to God in love. The work of building justice in the world can be compared to shining a light on a situation. And we have to be willing to look at, to see and to understand where injustice lies, what the causes of injustice are, so that we can shine the light of Christ into areas of darkness and bring those places of darkness back into the light. The prophecy of Isaiah tells us, you see, that the servant of God might be bruised, might be broken, but ultimately will not grow faint and be crushed until justice is established on the earth. The light we are called to bear in the world is the light that gives rise to justice by shining on oppression and highlighting God's intolerance to those who harm nature and other human beings. And so we speak out. We speak out on the injustices we see in our city. We speak out on the injustices we see internationally from the streets of Palestine to the streets of the West End. Our calling is to bear the light of the world who comes into to the world at Bethlehem and who continues to come to the world through us. And so as we approach Christmas, let us hear again the words of Jesus, who is the suffering servant of God. I am the light of the world, says our Lord. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen. Thank you very much.
Simon. Let us take a minute to reflect on what we just heard. I'd like to invite the panel to join me on stage, Liz, Nigel, and I think we're having Jeff on screen, hopefully. Just waiting for that to come on. I was um, intrigued by the verse uh, verse 6 I am the Lord I have called you in righteousness I have taken you by the hand and kept you I have given you as a covenant to the people a light to the nations and just sitting and reflecting I was thinking about how Jenny came out of the room and mum was holding her hand and she was so brave until she got to, to there and then she got a little bit more reticent but mum was still holding her hand and then they climbed the stairs and got extra more reticent but mum was there to hold and to encourage and to try and encourage Jenny to take part and I was thinking yeah our God is holding our hands we are keen and interested and everything is wonderful and then something ah and then we need to be held I need to be encouraged I need to be enabled to be that light and eventually the light was lit unfortunately Jenny didn't take part so that spoils the illusion but <laughs> The whole concept of being led by the hand in sometimes difficult, challenging, and troublesome moments. Nigel, thank you. Jeff, good morning. You appeared. Can I, can I give <laughs> good you Good morning. <laughs> there were a couple of things I jumped off on on this sermon. Um, Simon said, uh, the first Isaiah goes, ah, see what's happening in the north. That's the Lord's judgment on them. If we don't clean up our act here in the south and get back to worshipping the Lord properly, the same thing will happen to us. And I sort of understand that. But if you think Liz Truss, for instance, you know, there's a, a total commitment to a particular view of uh, philosophy and government that she embodied and her attitude was you need more of it you've got to go with it you've got to believe in it and I think the 
the thing that comes out is no you don't you don't join a team that sort of yells and marches and, and screams at the population uh, that's a bit hitler-esque but um and you need to be individually as well as collectively critical of where you are and the other thing that jumped out at me is you've got this history across the exile and i don't know if i've got my dates quite right here but you've got nehemiah comes back from the exile complete with the books that have been written during that exile to bring that to the people who have been resident in israel and uh i think it gives a completely different perspective he's not dragging people back to what they already knew he's actually introducing a whole load of new stuff just a different different sort of take on it um so that there are a couple of things that jumped out at me thank you jeff please Share um, your reflections. Yeah, I love the reflection of the holding hand thing, actually, because the, the thing that came out to me, even when before Simon had started speaking, but was um, when the Bible verse was was read, was the um, was obviously the bruise reed uh, will not break, but also I am the Lord, I have kept you, and the reason this stuck in my head was um, my kind of church upbringing as a child I was in a, a kind of church where there was no symbols we weren't allowed crosses or anything like that but at the front of the church were two panels and one said able to save and the other one said able to keep now as a child the able to keep thing kind of confused me a bit I didn't really understand what that meant but as I've got older the able to keep matters much more to me because time's gone on and you know things don't seem quite so straightforward and so the, the kind of idea of somebody holding on to you, able to keep, matters a lot to me. Because um, we're talking about trying to keep the faith, but also, you know, this awareness that God holds on to you and that it's not all about you trying to hold on, but that you are, are held as well. Um, and I think that in this time of Christmas, it's actually really, you know, we, we look at like amazing trees and all the tinsel and the lights and all of that, and it is fun and it's great. And, and I love, love it, but there's also a part of it that you're aware that for so many people, Christmas is appallingly bad, you know, it's, and for some of us here, it will be bad. It will be people we've lost, memories, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that understanding of how hard Christmas is, but, and, and for some people it can be traumatic and it can be, you feel very lost and you see everybody else with all the, 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 the kind of lights and the tinsel and it's very hard and I think the kind of story of Christmas you know and um, Simon said faith in the midst of vulnerability well if that isn't a kind of summary of the Christmas story you know baby in a manger you know exile um, so I guess it just leaves me actually quite hopeful because it's actually we don't have to pretend that we've you know we've got lots of lights on and that we're you know it's all fine actually we're allowed to be broken we're allowed to be vulnerable but we are held and we are kept um and that then leaves me to question well how do i make sure that i am the the life-giving power and strength to others how do i make sure that i'm the sight and the life and the light um 
it doesn't mean that I, I, I have to not be broken. It doesn't mean that I can't be vulnerable or that I can't hurt or that, but it, it actually, that, that kind of, you know, the saying that you need cracks because that's how the light gets in, I think is just really important because sometimes we forget and we think we've got to pretend that everything's okay at Christmas, but it, it isn't. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's sort of where it took me. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to all three of you for coming up and, and sharing your thoughts. Let us bring our prayers of intercession before God. Ever faithful and ever loving God. Thank you that you are always with us, whatever may be happening, either to us as individuals or in the world around. Thank you that you show us how to follow in your footsteps. Thank you that you have power, even in our vulnerability. That you make a highway through the desert. You cause the wilderness to burst into flower. And you bring fertility where there is barrenness. Thank you that these visions bring light and life to those who are trapped in darkness. We realize that we are like bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks. We are weighed down by the chaos and problems that surround us. We are broken people. Help us to know your grace and power. Help us to see the cracks where your light breaks in. Help us to understand that we have your power within us, that power of compassion and hope. Help us to understand that you call us to be a light to the nations and help us to throw open the doors to let the light shine out brightly into our dark world. May we be willing to look with the benefit of your light and to recognize what we are seeing. When we see injustice, help us to understand its causes and be willing to speak out and act against it. We think today of the inequality in our own country of those struggling to feed themselves and their families, those with no secure home in which to live, with no work or in urgent need of health care. We pray particularly that our government may recognize these injustices and work to overturn them so that all may live in security and health. And we pray for other parts of the world where injustice rules. Thinking particularly this morning for situations such as in Myanmar, Israel and Palestine, Sudan, Afghanistan and Pakistan. We ask that wisdom may prevail and that just regimes may re replace those currently in power.
and we think of those who are trapped in servitude of different kinds. Violent relationships, harsh working conditions, or who have been trafficked. Give their enslavers the vision to set their slaves free so that they may also live in peace and happiness. At this Christmas tide, may your light truly enter our troubled world. Show us how to open the door and strengthen us to be able to show the light of your love to all around us. We pray these things in the name of the one who entered our world, experienced its injustice himself, and showed us the possibility of another way. Amen. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord smile upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord show his favor to us and give us peace. Amen.